Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. All right, here we go with our great road tax debate. Now, this idea of a road tax in Vancouver was a key issue in the recent municipal election. You may have heard some of the campaign ads from the new mayor, Ken Sim, running for mayor against Kennedy Stewart at the time, saying that he would stop any road tax in the city. Now, this is an idea that was studied by the city. There were resources put into it. The new city council now has slammed the brakes on that. They passed a resolution at council canceling any further study of this uh, idea. Ken Sim taking a look at his Twitter feed here. He writes, thank you to all Vancouverites who work so hard to make this moment a reality. We have stopped the road tax. Let's discuss it now with our panel. We've got two great guests for you, both sides of it. Peter Waldkirch on the line is a Vancouver-based lawyer. He is an advocate for more affordable, sustainable, and livable cities. Peter, thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Also on the line, Vancouver City Councilor Mike Klassen. And Mike uh, promised to get rid of the road tax in Vancouver. Hey, Mike. Good morning, Mike. Okay, thank you to both of you. Councillor, let me go to you first. Tell me about this road tax. This was a, a controversial issue during the election because Kennedy Stewart's team was saying, like, wow, this is all just fake news. We weren't really going to do a road tax anyway. Tell me what council has done here now on this file. Well, just on the first point, Mike, uh, the, the road tax was a reality. It was it was sort of framed as a fiction by by uh, Kennedy Stewart and, and, uh, and our opponents, but... The fact is the city had allotted $1.5 million in a multi-phased uh, uh, project and study. They hired uh, two full-time staff to work on the project, and they spent about uh, nearly a half million dollars of that money uh, getting ready uh, to get going on this road tax. So essentially what we did is uh, we had a motion. Uh, it went to the floor, debated, uh, had a discussion, and uh, on Tuesday we, um, we finished it off. We basically said, uh, there is no Vancouver road tax uh, coming, and we've asked all work to be uh, ceased on that, and uh, the two staff have been reassigned. Okay, let's, Peter Walkirch, give me your thoughts on this. I'm taking a look at your your Twitter feed, Peter, and you wrote this week, the ca- city council is is about to actively prevent any work being done by the city of Vancouver on congestion pricing. This is a terrible move that effectively kills the climate emergency action plan in the city. Why do you feel that this was a terrible move to put the brakes on this? Yeah, thanks. Well, look, congestion pricing, which is one of the names this goes by, is a proven evidence-based approach that's been used in many other cities around the world to reduce traffic, to improve public safety, and to fight climate change, all while raising money for public transit so taxes don't need to be raised. And I got to say, I was really disappointed by a lot of the debate about this. Mayor, the former Mayor Kennedy Stewart did say he was against the tax. So unfortunately, there's, for somebody like me, there was nobody to really support in the last election. But the reality is, is that ABC Councillor Bly also voted in support of this study. So the way it was, uh. and that's because that was a good vote, because this is an evidence-based policy that makes a lot of sense. Vancouver wouldn't be going out on the own. Other cities are doing it. And so it was a good vote just to study. 
study. And so the way it was politicized and turned into this ideological thing where now staff aren't even allowed to think about it, I find that pretty uh, pretty irresponsible by the current council. Okay. Okay, Councillor Mike Klassen, what do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, to, to Peter's point, uh, there have been some jurisdictions that have adopted it. In fact, uh, when the, uh, the original motion that we put forward said that we wanted to, to focus on uh, any work that Vancouver was doing, uh, but the fact is, is that um, uh, the Green Councillor Adrian Carr put forward a um, just a, an, an, an amendment to underline what was essentially already in the motion, which is that if if there is a regional approach to this and uh, the province or other levels of government want to work on this, then possibly Vancouver you know would be a part of that. But Vancouver doing it on its own, um, sort of shuttering off its downtown core that's been struggling through COVID, you know, the business community, uh, places like Chinatown are really trying, trying desperately to attract pa- people back. And so um, this would be uh, something that would be a deterrent to uh, maintaining and, and being able to bring back people into the downtown core to, to do business and to, and to, uh, yeah. and do commerce. So, yeah. Okay. Peter, what do you say to that? He says it's bad for the economy. Well, that's unfortunately just not true. That's not what the evidence shows. So, for example, in London, uh, where they implemented uh, congestion pricing, yes, there was, they, saw, they saw a reduction in vehicles entering the congestion zone, a 44% reduction, but the amount of people entering the central business district increased by 23%. And that's because right now, traffic is a major deterrent to going downtown, and this is the best way of reducing traffic that any city around the world has come up with. And so so right now, council has said, hey, we have, staff is working on a plan to reduce traffic. We're not going to let them do that anymore. But we don't have any other ideas on how to reduce traffic. Again, I don't find that very sort of helpful. And on this regional approach thing, too, I got to say, I find that not very, a not very realistic way of doing this. The TransLink in 2018 had an independent commission to look into this. And they found that oh. every city that has implemented congestion pricing has done so starting off in the downtown core. Sometimes they then expand it depending on how things go. Sometimes they shrink it depending on how things go. But you start where it makes sense, where transit is already good, and that's the downtown core. I just think it's unrealistic to say, like, what does this regional approach even mean? Is it saying we're not going to have congestion pricing where we need it in the downtown core until we also are charging people to drive in, in Poco or Langley? To me, this regional approach, it's, kind of, it's a distraction that ignores the, okay. the actual evidence for how this works. Mike Klassen, what do you say to that? Well, basically, first of all, uh, the, um, the, the, the road tax was going to add additional costs at a time when people are already feeling the squeeze from inflation. Uh, we've got, uh, uh, you know, it was estimated that uh, a trip into the downtown core, uh, perhaps uh, uh, even based upon the size of the vehicle, could be anywhere between sort of 5 and $25 uh, for a trip. Remember, you'd have to put in all that infrastructure. We're talking about you know, millions upon millions of dollars to try and install things that would read license plates or however they would try and track it. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, you know, I met, uh, listened to uh, Kevin Quinn, uh, TransLink CEO at his uh, Board of Trade lunch discussion. He's, he's getting desperately worried about the changes that are happening that are impacting uh, the gas tax that, uh, that fund transit. We're seeing, you know, mm. fewer people uh, in, um, uh, in, in uh, combustion uh, engine vehicles, they're moving to EVs, you know, he thinks this is an unreliable uh, source of revenue for him. So 
I, I really don't think uh, that we should be putting the squeeze you, on drivers to come into the downtown core. Okay, do you, Peter, is that how much it would cost? Like, you heard, just heard Councillor Mike Klassen say that it could have cost somewhere between 5 and $25 each time you drive into downtown Vancouver if this thing had gone forward. Is that how it would work? Is that roughly the ballpark of how it would be in there? I mean, unfortunately, we have no idea because staff are no longer allowed to even look at it. But I would say that, you know, one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that people are already paying for traffic right now. It's just that you're paying for it with your time. You're paying for it with time away from your family, away from your friends, away from your job. If you're sitting in traffic right now, stressed out, stuck in this horrible sort of situation, the city should be doing something about it. And congestion pricing was by far the best way to do it because the reality is that everybody driving around all the time is a very inefficient way to move people around the city. All right, we're talking congestion pricing, road pricing in Vancouver. Peter Waldkirch, Vancouver City Councillor, Mike Klassener here. We got a ton of phone calls. Malcolm in North Vancouver. Hey, Malcolm, go ahead. Well, I was North Vancouver. Now I'm in Richmond, but I went through this downtown Vancouver. I'm in the delivery business, so okay. our truck goes to and from the airport to do our deliveries. What about all the delivery trucks that have to go through the city of Vancouver? What about all the uh, people that have to go to the cancer clinic, which is, happens to be within that corridor. I don't disagree with uh, this thing, uh, essentially, but it's not. It's a never-ending elephant that's going to be around. Oh, if five dollars isn't enough, we're going to make it. Some, it's just going to be another tax where we can't afford, and it okay. will be passed on to the consumer. Okay, Peter, what do you? Thanks for the call, Peter. What do you say to that? Like I, you hear this a lot for people who have to drive frequently into the into the city core, whether they've run a, a delivery business or they've got to go to the hospital yeah. for cancer treatments. Go ahead. Well, for delivery businesses, this is actually one of the reasons to implement congestion pricing because congestion imposes real costs on delivery businesses as well. It's typical that cities have implemented this to have exemptions, first of all, complete exemptions for commercial vehicles. So in London, commercial vehicles pay nothing. And in cities that have implemented congestion pricing, we have seen a reduction by about 10% in delivery times because the roads Mm. are more free and less congested. So congestion pricing is good for business. Mike Klassen, what do you say to that? Well, first of all, I, I just want to acknowledge the fact that uh, Peter's been laser-focused on issues like housing and the environment. And those are things that uh, our whole ABC team are extremely concerned about as well. Um, you know, I go back to the, uh, the, the messaging from uh, the TransLink CEO talking about um, finding that uh, using vehicle taxes as a, as a measure of uh, 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 gaining revenue is, is a challenging one. Uh, I think we need to look at the way we can incentivize um, uh, people to to uh, to you know try and shop local and and, and do more of their business locally. Uh, you know we have uh, you know plans for making our neighborhoods great. We need to have more sort of local shopping. And then um, your your caller is exactly right. We're moving to more of an online world, so we've got tons of people working from home now. And as a result, we don't have uh, as many people going into the downtown core to work. That's having right. a direct impact on business. And like I say, there are neighborhoods and, and businesses and festivals that want to have people come in. They don't need those disincentives and the extra costs to try and prevent them from coming in. Okay. Mike and Coquitlam on the open line. Hi, Mike. Go ahead. Uh, hey, thanks, Mike. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I've been a courier for about 30 years. I drive from the Tri-Cities to downtown, and I spend time in the core every day. And... Uh, I agree with Ken Sim. I don't think we need uh, any cha- any uh, tax on that, any um, travel tax. 
the downtown core through the last 15 years with the changes they made. I know Bruce Allen was against the bike lanes, but if you drive in the core every day, it's actually, you get around quite well. Uh, it's improved mm. uh, in the last 15 years, I would say. Traffic, you know, it flows. When you give less options uh, on which lanes to use, traffic flows a little, uh, quite a bit better. I think the only time there's problems is when people come into the city for a special event, and that's when people start to complain. But if you drive in the city every day, it's fine. I don't think we need so, a congestion tax. But I do appreciate the gentleman's point that having less cars in the core would make uh, travel times quicker. But yeah. I think if you're a regular driver, you get around quick enough anyway. Okay, Peter, what do you say to that? Congestion's not that bad. Well, look, there's only one way really to make congestion better, and that's to have less car trips. That's one of the reasons I think that downtown Vancouver has been somewhat successful at, thanks to improved transit, thanks to bike lanes, getting people out of cars and into other ways of getting around. Uh, the reality is the congestion pricing would have funded that. It was, gonna, it was estimated mm. to raise over $100 million a year that would have been put wow. into transit and improvements like that. So without this source of funding, which was the major source of funding in the Climate Emergency Action Plan, there's now a huge hole in the city's budget that's going to have to come from increased taxes if we still want to see mm. improved transit. And going back to your previous point, as again, the evidence shows that reducing traffic through congestion pricing it makes it easier for people to come downtown. More people come downtown when there's less traffic. So it, uh, this is a way of, in, of supporting businesses in Chinatown and downtown yeah. by making it easier to get around downtown. George and Coquitlam on the open line. Hi, George. Go ahead. Bring Peter up to date. Listen, we moved our corporation from Park Place out to New West. My wife used to work for a specialist. She's now in Coquitlam. The buildings are empty. We're not going down into Vancouver. Peter's got to get out of his parents' basement and realize that there's so much vacancy downtown now because people are not going downtown. The traffic has gone the other direction. We don't go downtown okay. for dinners anymore because of the parking expenses. The, <laughs> the town is turning into a ghost town. So, Peter, take my advice. Walk the streets and take a look. There's nobody coming into Vancouver. Okay, let's let's be nice. I don't know. I don't know if Peter lives in his parents' basement. I doubt that he does. So let's let's I'll be. Say a, I don't. Let's, if I could quickly yeah, just say, I, say I don't. I would I would just say I don't live in my parents' basement. But if, you know, insults aside, I would suggest I spend a lot of time walking the streets of this city. Uh, that's the main way I get around, actually. And so I would suggest that people. That's a good thing for people to try and do to get out from their car, experience their neighborhoods, experience the city, and they'll see that downtown is a lovely, thriving place. The down the whole urban core of Vancouver is thriving. That caller couldn't be more wrong and gratuitously insulting. Okay, let's fit in. One more call. Susan in North Van. Hi, Susan. Go ahead. Hi. I, I think this is all blown out of proportion. I really don't. First of all, um, let me read you something here. If the plan, the plan wouldn't be implemented because um, the NDP government have already said that they wouldn't support it, and they are the ultimate ones to give the okay, not the city of Vancouver. And, and people get up on their high horse, they get all excited, they get all upset. I mean, there was a study for sure, and maybe down the road, but it wasn't something that was going to happen tomorrow. And Mr. Okay. Sims comes in like a knight in shining armor, and really, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't like that. Okay, Councillor Klassen, I hate to cut you off, but we're out of time. We've only got, Mike, we've got 30 seconds left here. What do you say to that argument that the province wouldn't have allowed it to go forward anyway? 30 seconds left here. 
Basically, we uh, had an election. We we're, we had a resounding victory. I think the people uh, voted for uh, our plan to remove the remove this congestion pricing, remove the get rid of the road tax, and and uh, and they heard loud and clear. That's what we were going to do, and we've done it. All right, welcome back. Let's focus on the drug overdose crisis in our province now. More than 10,000 people have died in B.C. from illicit drug overdoses since a public health emergency was declared. Why is this happening? Officials point to a toxic supply of illegal street drugs as one of the reasons, the key reason. One answer to this crisis is the so-called safe supply of drugs for people who are addicted to drugs. What is safe supply? Is it actually safe? The idea is to provide people with safer, regulated supply of drugs to prevent deadly drug overdoses from illegal street drugs. We talked about this earlier this week on the show. Have a listen to Dr. Mark Tyndall now from the My Safe Society, speaking to our own Eric Chapman here. People can argue, well, get, taking drugs isn't safe. Um, sure, you could, you know, there's a lot of other oh, yeah. things to be concerned about. Yeah. But as far as, you know, dying when you take a dose, um, it's safe. Um, the longer term implications of using drugs every day has its own own issues, but um, it's it's uh, safe for the uh, to, in order to prevent people from d- dropping dead. Okay, let's discuss this further now. Is safe supply really safe? My guest is Dr. Julian Summers from Simon Fraser University. Dr. Summers is a specialist researcher in addictions and mental health. I'm very pleased to welcome you to the show, Dr. Summers. Thanks a lot for coming on today. It's great to be with you, Mike. Thanks. Okay, so let's talk about safe supply. There's a lot of this in the news uh, recently. How do you define it? Like, what is your understanding of what safe supply is and how it works? Well, you you set it up, I think, correctly. Uh, The the goal is to um, reach people who are not involved with any kind of uh, treatment and uh, essentially to replace their current dealer with a source of drugs um, that uh, can provide them with substances of known purity and dose. That's essentially what it, what it is. So because, because these are people who are, who are not involved with treatment at the moment, the uh, friction or the, you know, the, uh, the, the challenge of gaining access to, to drugs has to be very low in order to attract people. So um, it's a fairly uh, accessible uh, low barrier um, approach that's being uh, that's being promoted. Right, and is it working? Is it saving lives? Uh, well, there isn't any evidence that it's uh, achieving any of the stated goals. Um, there, there are lots of reasons that also to be concerned about um, uh, consequences of of providing uh, expanding essentially the drug supply particularly in light of the circumstances that people who are at risk are living in. Okay, so let's talk about some of the, some of the, the risks here of this. What, what are your concerns with uh, safe supply? Well, the people who are um, most at risk are um, people without jobs. Mm-hmm. They're living in uh, um, poor, and, and uh, that's, that's often an understatement, poor 
um, circumstances in terms of housing. Many are homeless. Um, people with uh, untreated mental illnesses are also among those at highest risk. And um, the, uh, the consequences of providing additional drugs to people um, living in those kinds of settings and with those challenges um, is, is immense. It can, it, uh, the, the, the possibilities are triggering symptoms, so harms directly to them, but, but also um, harms associated with the diversion of those drugs. There's, there's mm. evidence of people um, receiving drugs that are not exactly what they want, um, and so, but, but accessing them because they're, they have value. And then, and then selling them. Now that is a potentially that it's been argued by advocates that that's a benefit to the people receiving the drugs. Now they have money to buy what they want, which could include food. But it it inflates the overall drug supply, and there is uh, also a, a legacy of evidence that diverted drugs cause harms to other people. Yeah. Do you think that the term, like the label that we use here, safe supply, is in any way uh, a misnomer or a, a false label to put on it to call these drugs safe? Like, I remember when supervised injection sites were first introduced, and a lot of people would call them safe injection sites. And I remember speaking to a a police officer in the downtown east side who said, I, I don't call them safe injection sites. I call them supervised injection sites because it's not safe to inject these drugs. Do you think the same thing runs true here with safe supply? Is it, is it really accurate to call it safe? Um, no, it, 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 I mean, as I mentioned, um, and as, and, and even as, as advocates for this practice agree, there isn't evidence, uh, um, concerning outcomes of this uh, directly. Um, no country, by the way, has, has taken this approach. Um, and so it's, uh, um, uh, it is absolutely premature to be calling it um, uh, safe. Um, in fact, uh, you know, as a, as a researcher in the area and a clinician in the area, it, it, it arouses a kind of immediate suspicion uh, especially those, you know, everyone uh, um, in the field should have learned important lessons from the oxy crisis, uh-huh. and um, that was an example in which pharmaceutical grade drugs of known dose and purity resulted in a catastrophic number of deaths. So the the, the fact that drugs of of known purity uh, can can themselves be fatal um, is beyond dispute. Right. What, what's also important in, in BC is, is the toxicology results show that people are not dying exclusively from um, particular drugs. They're dying from a cocktail of drugs. Most of these autopsies reveal the presence of multiple substances. Some of them are, are, are piling on top of each other. So they, they just, they're central, different types of central nervous system depressants. There's, there are high rates of stimulants also in the bloodstreams yeah. of people who perish, and the, par- the, the stimulants lead people to take more of the depressants. So when we look at this mess of drugs and try to come up with which is the straw that broke the camel's back, mm. it's, it, from a practical standpoint, it's not possible to do that. And, and the, the zeal that governments have taken to pin the blame on fentanyl 
um, is also something that should arouse suspicion. Uh, There's there's plenty of evidence, uh, decades of evidence, confirming that it's possible to provide people with what they want and help them establish greater wellness, and that that does not involve diverting uh, them from um, uh, illegal drug dealers while we leave them homeless, unemployed, and with untreated mental illnesses. Okay, speaking to Dr. Julian Summers from Simon Fraser University about safe supply of drugs, is it really is it really safe? Let me play another clip here for you from Mark Tyndall from the My Safe Society speaking earlier this week on the show, and he says it's all about making sure people correct, receive the correct dose of safe supplied drugs. Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. It's really the um, unregulated supply out there and people don't know what they're getting and there's no quality control. And so people get bad, bad lots of this stuff and go down. So it is, if, if we give people the right regulated dose, um, then it is relatively safe. Okay. What do you think of that? You say, you know, when people buy illegal drugs on the street, they may be getting a deadly dose of fentanyl or some other deadly drug. And it's better just to give people a, a measured, a measured dose from a safe supply, safe, safe supply of drugs. Your thoughts? Well, that, 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 that was not a fruitful avenue when it came to Oxycontin, Oxycodone. Um, there's, there's, um, uh, if we step back from what people are, are actually wanting, the, the vast majority want to improve their overall wellness and their circumstances. Yeah. And um, for us as a society to say, um, look, we, we see that you're living in squalor, you have untreated mental illnesses, you're unemployed, you've had extreme difficulties throughout life, often beginning in childhood with, with, um, with, with adversity. The best, we've, the best science can do for you is provide you with an alternative source of drugs, right? That's simply a, a cruel oversimplification that overlooks all of the evidence we have available confirming that we know how to respond to people. And in fact, for people who aren't living in those circumstances, we do provide effective addiction treatment. Physicians, for example, have access to addiction treatments. Airline pilots, lawyers, nurses, even public servants in many jurisdictions in Canada have access to addiction treatment. That does not involve anything like safe supply. In fact, it emphasizes what we refer to as the social determinants of health and reorients people's attention to the things that give life meaning and that for most of us insulate us from problems involving addiction. If I could boil it down, all of the evidence available shows that we can address addiction by addressing the demands that lead to addiction. And the war on drugs teaches us over the last 50 years that there is no amount of investment in trying to curtail or change the supply of drugs that is going to work. We have to focus and open our eyes to the reality that demand is is up and going up in B.C., All right, welcome back to the show as we continue my conversation with Dr. Julian Summers, addictions researcher at Simon Fraser University. And we're talking about the concept of safe supply of drugs for drug addicts to prevent further overdose deaths. Is safe safe supply 
really safe. Now, let me play another clip here for you, Dr. Summers. Mark Tyndall from the My Safe Society speaking on the show earlier this week. And he makes the point that if you can give people a regulated dose of drugs, it can actually improve their lives going forward. Here's what he had to say. Then I'll get your thoughts. Mark Tyndall here. People say, well, all you're doing is preventing people from dying and you're not really addressing all their other problems. My experience and the idea of safe supply, if you can um, interrupt the the grind that people go through to get their illegal drugs every day, it changes their lives dramatically and they can work on, you know, housing and um, social, other social things and their health. If they don't have to get up every morning and go and search for illegal drugs. Okay. What do you think of that idea that if you, you remove that kind of, as he described it, the daily grind of trying to access illegal drugs on the street and you give people a, a pre-measured dose of, quote-unquote safe drugs, you're going to have a better outcome for them in their lives. Your thoughts? Uh, fanciful. Um, he's saying that that's the idea behind it. Um, well, okay, many people can have ideas. Um, there's not a single study to support that line of reasoning, and there are so many impediments that people face um, to uh, moving on, that it it is almost, to me, delusional to suggest that simply providing them with a free alternative source of drugs is going to transform how they use their time. And now they're going to look, and, uh, look for and, and somehow be able to find a place to live if they're homeless or a place that's not an SRO if that's where they're, if that's where they're currently living. And that they're going to be able to find a job and, and work on their, their nutrition and, and reconnecting with family members. You know, in our research over these last uh, 20, 30 years, um, the people that we've worked with uh, who are homeless, struggling with addictions and mental illnesses, 25% have kids under age 18 that they that they desperately want to be reconnected with they have they have no opportunity to do that in their circumstances um when we give them choices and we've we've canadians have funded a, a huge body of research um some of the world's best research on how to help people exit these 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 uh incredibly uh, uh, toxic circumstances and when we give them choices they choose independent housing they choose to pursue employment. And, and I'm talking about people who are identified as the hardest to house, the least likely to receive any benefit. And the quality of this, this evidence is unsurpassed. It comes from randomized controlled trials that were conducted in Vancouver, as well as four other Canadian cities, all with similar results, showing that providing people with choices to pursue wellness results in superior outcomes for the individuals themselves superior outcomes for communities, and superior cost effectiveness. It's about $55,000 per person per year for someone to be homeless with an addiction and mental illness in BC, and we've known this for some time. The only reason that people like, uh, like Dr. Tyndall are advocating for uh, what they refer to as safe supply right. is because of our, our absolute refusal to address the underlying causes of addiction that are increasing in prevalence across Canada, but most of all in BC. 
suicide rates are up. More than half of our prison population were diagnosed with addiction before they were incarcerated. And the use of involuntary admission to hospital for addiction has more than doubled under the NDP government. It's, it's, okay. there's, a, there's an iceberg below the poisoning deaths that are, that are repeated, and government is unwilling to turn attention to them. Dr. Summers, it's, uh, it's been great to get the, the other side of it. This is a complex issue. I'm glad we got your voice on it today. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you, Mike. All right, let's talk about the big changes in B.C. condo and strata laws announced this week by Premier David Eby. There's a lot of them here, including phasing out rental restrictions in strata properties. Some strata buildings have no rentals allowed. All units must be owner-occupied. David Eby changing all that. All condos would be available to rent out if the owner wants to rent them out. Here's David Eby explaining it this week. Have a listen. It is simply unacceptable that a British Columbian who is searching Craigslist for a place to rent can't find a home and somebody who owns a condo is not permitted to rent that home to that individual. Okay, EB also announcing big changes to age restrictions in stratas this week. No more age restrictions. Now, you'd still be allowed to have seniors housing in a strata, 55 years of age or older. That would still be allowed for retirement properties. But some stratas have laws that you have to be over the age of 19 or you have to be over the age of 35 no kids allowed in some of these condo units eb says he wants to change that too have a listen i was contacted in my previous role as housing minister by a couple that uh, was pregnant they were expecting a child and they could not believe that the law in british columbia would allow for them to be evicted from their home because they decided to start a family. Okay, so these are some big changes in our strata rules here. Now, why is he doing it? He's trying to open up these homes to way more people, to as many people as possible. So it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter if you have kids. Okay, it doesn't matter if you want to rent the place instead of owning it. He wants to open up this housing to as many people as possible. Now, think about this one. What if you have a pet? What if you have a dog or cat, you're trying to find a place to rent, yeah, good luck with that. A lot of these properties have got no pet clauses allowed. Now, if you really want to open up housing to everyone, should you drop those rules in condos and allow everyone to have a pet? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Camille Labchuk, who's an animal rights lawyer. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Camille. Hi, Mike. Good to be here. Thanks a lot for coming on. Okay, so let's get into this one now. How many properties, rental properties in BC, are no pets allowed? Is it most of them? I don't know that we have statistics on that, but uh, you know, I, I can tell you that people express concerns all the time about how difficult it is to find a place to rent when they have pets. Yeah. This includes stratas and other rental properties. Right. Uh, you know, the BC STCA actually says that 25% of the animals who are surrendered by their owners to the STCA. It's done for housing-related reasons. So that's an enormous number of people who are having these challenges and have to give up family members. 
Yeah, what kind of stories do you hear from people that you talk to about this? Like, I've heard from people who have, they might have a small, quiet dog, they say, or a cat. They say, this this pet is no problem at all, but they just can't find a place that will allow them to have it. Well, that's the problem with these stories. Is like, in 99.9% of cases, the pets aren't a problem. They're, you know, respectful. They're well-behaved. They don't bother anyone. I mean, most of the time, folks don't even know that there's pets in the units, the, the building owners or managers or whomever. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it really puts people in a tough position. I have heard stories, Mike, from people who've had challenges finding rental housing, and they've said, I would rather live in my car with my dog than give my dog up to a shelter and move into a place that doesn't allow pets. Wow. Well, okay, that's someone who really loves their pet, for sure. Like, but, but like you say, a pet is a member of the family. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. I mean, about half of Canadian families or individuals have cats, they have dogs. Um, this is, you know, this is not just a small minority of people who are looking for places to live with their animals. This is most yeah. of us. Right. What is it like in other jurisdictions? Like, are there any jurisdictions in Canada, provinces, cities that have these pets? Uh, all pets must be allowed. You're not allowed to put in a no pets clause. Is that is that the case anywhere? It is, actually. I live in Toronto, Mike, and I can tell you that Ontario has had uh, legislation banning no pets clauses in leases for 25 years now. And, oh. uh, you know, it, it's not as good as it could be. It could be a little bit better because a landlord could still refuse to rent from somebody to somebody in the first place if they have a pet. But once you're in the unit and you have a pet, they, they can't put any clauses in the lease because that would be void and they couldn't kick you out unless there was, you know, some reason and, and some, some purpose behind it, like a dog causing serious damage. Um, so, right. you know, Mike, it's been fine here. No one here complains about, like, landlords aren't out there complaining about you no know, pet clauses being eliminated in leases. Um, everyone seems to really benefit from it in Ontario, and I think BC could be in a similar position. We are in a national housing crisis, a, a crisis that extends right across the country. And, you know, it's, it's surprising that given BC is taking these steps to try to alleviate that crisis, that they would leave families with pets out in the cold. What if you have a problem animal in a in a rental unit? Like, let's say you have a dog that's causing damage. Uh, maybe the dog's not house trained. What do you do in that case? Can the landlord, like, let's say in Ontario where you are, can the landlord evict someone if they have a problem pet? Yeah, you know what? There's lots of ways to deal with, with landlord and tenant conflicts like that. Um, that don't even really have anything to do whether it's a pet or not. So, you know, if I lived in the unit and I was damaging it and, you know, or maybe throwing loud parties that disturbed the neighbor, um, whether I'm throwing loud parties or, you know, damaging a unit by keeping it really messy and dirty or whether it's a dog who's barking or, or making a mess, the remedy wow. is kind of the same. So you, you can go before a landlord and tenant board. You can, you can seek remedies. Um, you can also seek damage uh, payments for, for any damage to the unit that you as a landlord have to clean up. So there's ways to deal with it that are, you know, fairly straightforward and, and much better than simply banning all pets. Yeah. Would that also apply to, let's say, someone who refuses to clean up after their pet? Because I've talked to people who live in strata properties who say they've got they've got bad neighbors. They've got a dog that, you know, pooping on the lawn outside the unit and they don't clean it up. Oh, well, that sounds to me like a problem of just enforcing the condo bylaws. I mean, right. I have the same thing where, where I live in Toronto, and the condo corporation, uh, the Strata Corp, can just can find people who, who break those rules. So, yeah. you know, I think there's ways to deal with that, and people can, you know, get along and respect each other as a community without government going in there and, you know, preventing 
um, you know, a really good rule that should be in place. How about if you got an allergy? Like, let's say your neighbor or someone in the building has got a severe allergy to a dog or a cat and they don't want to be exposed to a dog or a cat in an elevator or, or something like that because of an allergy. Or maybe they've got a, a fear or a phobia about dogs. What about their rights? Yeah, you know, I, I think it would be tough to exist in society without occasionally encountering a dog in an elevator. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of all over the place. So, I, you know, I'm certainly sympathetic to those concerns and folks with allergies. That's unfortunate. But, uh, you know, maybe a condo corporation can say this elevator can have dogs in it and, and this one can't. Um, I think there's other ways around that and dealing with those very rare situations rather than just a full-on ban on keeping dogs or cats in the building. Okay, so you think it should be wide open here then in, in British Columbia that these no-pet-allowed, no-pets clauses should be eliminated and everyone should be allowed to have a pet if they want. Is that right? Well, you know, I, I think it's a, a delicate balance to strike and I think it would be wise to consult on this and, and get input from anyone who'd be affected um, and that there could be, you know, some reasonable rules in place to make sure that people are you know, keeping pets responsibly. Maybe there could be a restriction on the number. Maybe there could be um, provisions that kick in if there's too much noise or, or mess being made. Um, I'm not yeah. saying it should be a free-for-all, but I think, you know, right. this idea that pets, you know, simply can't be allowed at all in buildings doesn't really make sense in the vast majority of cases. These pets are, tend to be well-behaved. Um, usually, no one even knows that they're there. And uh, if they're not allowed in, uh, it just leaves families without many options. Camille, thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Always glad to join you, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.